is looking at you. Hello and welcome to the Here's Looking at You podcast, a podcast where we explore the intersections of gender, sexuality and performance. I'm Dr Ellen Wright, I'm Senior Lecturer in Cinema and Television History at De Montfort University and I specialise in the representation of gender and sexuality in Hollywood in the first half of the 20th century. In today's podcast, we're talking about sexual desire and pornography. I'm talking with Dr Lucy Neville of the University of Leicester. Lucy is a lecturer in criminology with an interest in understanding women's engagement with sex, sex work and pornography. Her PhD thesis in forensic psychology involved investigating violence perpetuated against sex workers by both clients and intimate partners across seven metropolitan areas between 1980 and 2006. And since then, she's worked on a number of projects focused around women involved in sex work. Prior to working in academia, she worked for several years at BBC Media Action, the BBC's international development charity, where she worked on projects as diverse as HIV and AIDS awareness in Cambodia, learning English as a second language in Bangladesh, gender-based violence in refugee camps in South Sudan, and a large-scale piece of research investigating the public perception of climate change across Africa. I became aware of Lucy's work through the splendid University of Leicester Media and Gender Research Group, where she mentioned that her latest book, Girls Who Like Boys Who Like Boys, Women and Gay Male Pornography and Erotica, had just been published. And it's with this that I was particularly interested, as I teach a little about slash fiction and shipping in my film and material cultures module. I also found Lucy's exploration of a much broader, less conservative notion of female sexual desire to be genuinely progressive and deeply feminist. I also really enjoyed reading her work around the notion of genderfuck and queer heterosexuality. She kindly made time to chat with me during the stifling heatwave of late July, early August, and for this I was extremely grateful. Just a warning before we transfer over to Lucy. We do discuss some explicit topics and use explicit language during this conversation. So if you're easily offended, let's face it, you've probably already turned off as I've already used the term genderfuck, but this podcast episode might not be the one for you. Then again, maybe you'll learn something. Let's go to Lucy. Okay, hello and welcome to the Here's Looking at You podcast. Today I am joined by Lucy Neville. Hello Lucy. Hello. How are you? I'm good, thank you. How are you? All good, all good. Yes, yes, yes indeed. So I'm here to talk to you today about your rather exciting work uh, that I was glued to um, <laughs> for a, a number of weeks, sort of reading in amongst other bits of reading and what have you. Um, but I think maybe we can sort of lay a bit of groundwork first, if that's okay. So I'm sure. wondering if you might be able to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself as a researcher, what your research specialisms are, a little bit about your academic background. Uh, yeah, sure. I think of myself as being quite interdisciplinary. So I started off life as a psychologist. Uh, and then I did my PhD in forensic psychology, looking at violence towards sex workers. And I've defected into the soft side of criminology, which is sort of looked down upon by some forensic psychologists as being more sociological and less hardcore scientific. Um, I do a lot of work around, uh, still looking a lot at sex work and violence uh, and domestic violence. Um, and so for me, looking at porn is sort of a bit of light relief from all the pain, misery, <laughs> death that my work tends to focus on. I'm like, hey, look, sex can sometimes be fun. It doesn't always result in like beatings and death and destruction and a terrible world full of rape culture and horror. Um, so really the kind of work around pornography is sort of from a cultural studies, media studies perspective, I guess. 
that's not really my background. So mm. in many ways, it was like doing a second PhD writing the book. And I think I'm probably, probably somewhat foolish to have done that. Uh, I was like, who, who would ever do a second PhD? Obviously, apart from, you know, Bruce Banner, who's got seven PhDs, because the Hulk is very stupid, apparently. Like, why do a postdoc when you could do another PhD? Um... So, yeah, my background is probably quite Right, so diverse. really quite, uh, yeah, quite different yeah. then, okay. Um, so I wonder then if there are any particular scholars or theorists that really interest you or have shaped where you found yourself as an academic. Yeah, I mean, I think I think of myself as a bit of a magpie. Uh, <laughs> so I think I kind of like, so, oh, shiny little thing, I'll take that, I'll take that bit. And I think being interdisciplinary as well, it's really interesting to look at how different subjects have approached the same issue completely differently and you've got writers from two different disciplines who are really making the same arguments but seem unaware of each other so for me finding those kind of synergies and connections is really exciting um I guess in terms of individual scholars there's less kind of focus on some sort of you know famous theorist or something that's Mm. really shaped my thinking and more about kind of feminist practice. Okay, yeah. Uh, so, for example, I used to work with Fiona Atwood. Um, ah, okay. I mean, her scholarship is great, but for yeah. me, really working with her, I admire her because, for me, she really um, kind of embodies, like, what feminism should be mm. in the academy. Like, she's so kind. She looks out for younger scholars. She always offers advice. Yeah. I feel particularly when you're researching sex, there's a lot of entrenched positions. You've got, like, the radical feminists, the sex-positive feminists, the sex-critical feminists. Yeah. Uh, and it can get incredibly unpleasant, and I don't think you necessarily need to do that. Like, there's yeah. room for kindness, even if you don't agree with someone's position, even if you think someone's position is dangerous yeah. in terms of the effect it could have on people if we're looking at, say, sex work, whether or not it should be criminalised, decriminalised, etc. Mm. You don't have to be mean to that person, and so not many you. people are quite savage. It yeah. puts you off researching <laughs> in this area. So people like Fiona, who are so kind, have definitely yeah. had an impact on me. Uh, here I work, do a lot of work with Tina Sanders. Right, uh, um, yeah. Who's similarly, I mean, she's like mega famous, but still like very humble, very open mm. to sort of helping other people out. And that sort of had a big, big impact on the way I like to sort of practice yeah. academia, as it were, and research. Mm. And I guess in terms of magpieism, I really like the work of Jodie McAllister. Okay. Um, so she's writing from within like English literature, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so really around... interdisciplinary we're going <laughs> yes. then, right, okay. <laughs> she writes quite a lot around uh, virginity loss. Uh, but I think I really admire her because she's also a, a creative writer. She writes young adult romance novels. Right. And she also writes this fantastic blog on like popular culture. She looks a lot like uh, the Bachelor franchise. Okay. So right, she's, just yeah, a, yeah. she's just a lovely writer. And I yeah. think it's great when you can find an academic where they're not writing some esoteric waffle. Like, <laughs> right, yeah. Sit down and read a book and... It can be an academic book, but it still like reads more like, you know, a novel in so much as it's yeah. engaging, it's warm, it kind of takes you by the hand and leads you through it, it doesn't mm. try and sort of razzle-dazzle you, like, look how clever I am, yeah. look at all the big words I know. So I really kind of admire the way that she writes. Yeah. Sorry, that was an incredibly long and rambling. No, no, that, that's exactly what I'm after. I mean, and the, it's interesting that you're saying this because the thing that I found, I mean, your, your, your book was my bedtime reading, was the thing that I would read, you know, as opposed to reading a novel. Yeah. You know, ten, and it, I'm terrible for it. I'll get into bed, I'll do 15 minutes and I'll nod off to sleep. That's yeah. what I do. But that's what I did with that book. Yeah. And, and often I can't cope with academic books, reading them in that way. It's the yeah. end of the day, it's when I'm winding down, I really can do without post-structuralist, <laughs> well, you know, just like, yeah, no, yeah. can't handle it yeah. at all. Whereas that was... 
a really, uh, not to do it a disservice at all, you know, it was a really engaging and considered piece of work that was written in a really straightforward way. I found it just really enjoyable. Oh, you know, well, the, the, the premise much. really worked. Um, so, as I said, then you've come to my attention because of Girls Who Like Boys Who Like Boys, yes. uh, which is a rather fantastic title. <laughs> um, I wonder if you could tell the listeners a little bit about the premise of the project, uh, what your methodology was, who your research subjects were, that sort of a thing. Sure. Um, well, it was a sort of labour of love project, as I was saying, because it doesn't really count <laughs> um, as forensic psychology or criminology. I guess it could be psychology if you squint at it. <laughs> Um, so it was never really going to go down very well in a criminology department as being referable. I'm not sure, but this is the, the, the framework we are held to as academics to show that we're doing excellent research. Um, so yeah, it was something I sort of did on evenings and weekends, mm. as a lot of our work is done. Oh, yes. <laughs> and uh, it just, uh, I sort of read around the issue, I guess, because it's something that I had a lot of personal interest mm. in. I speak a bit in the introduction to the book about my kind of personal interest in it, so... Yeah. Uh, when I used to go to kind of house parties as a teenager, a lot of the boys there would be like, oh, if we buy you girls a drink, will you snog each other? You know, performative, performative girl kissing. Yeah. Uh, and my some friends would be up for it, some wouldn't, and or they would say, oh, two drinks, and there would be that sort of negotiation <laughs> yeah. about what cost our sexual <laughs> performance was worth. Um, but my standard response was, I'll do it if you do it. And so the boys would be like, what, kiss each other? I'd be like, yep. And they'd be like, oh, is it, hmm... On the one hand, I really want to watch the girls kissing, but on the yeah. other hand, can I handle kissing another guy yeah. while everyone yeah. else at the party watches? And I just found it, like, really interesting. I yeah. think a lot of my female friends, like, it's a bit weird, Lucy, you kinky weirdo. Um, <laughs> but for me, I was just like, oh, it's so different from watching these guys kiss girls, where they would tend to be quite mm. great. You know, teenage boys aren't always the best kissers. Yeah. There's the whole washing machine kind of <laughs> lunge at you kissing technique. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas with each other, they'd be much more tentative. Okay. And the whole like kissing technique was sort of different, and yeah. I just found that so interesting and quite hot because I was like, mm. oh, this is a different side. Yeah, to I guess there's a vulnerability there. Yeah, isn't there? in yeah. terms of how I was understanding it. Um, and then as I sort of got older, I remember like uh, I remember watching Top Gun uh, at university. Oh, uh, okay, yeah. <laughs> between like Maverick and and and, and um, Goose, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not not Goose. Val <laughs> oh, no, Kilmer's yeah. character. Yeah. What's he called? Iceman. Iceman. Yes. Yeah. I was like, this is. They're not even really hiding it. Yeah. So I went like googling it and I found a piece of like fan fiction and I was like, oh, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So and then I became more involved in kind of slash fiction and fan right. fiction communities and erotic writing and so on. So it'd always been something I was interested in. Mm. And after a while I was kind of like, I'm not really that interested in heterosexual pornography, like video pornography, maybe mm. I'll try some um male male stuff. And mm. I was like, yep, this seems to be a lot more unproblematic in terms right. of how I can enjoy it. So, you know, having an inquisitive academic brain, I was like, well, there must be a bunch of research on this. Nope. And there wasn't really. <laughs> so I kind of found that research that looked at how women engaged with porn or erotica tended to assume yeah. that would be heterosexual or maybe lesbian, mm. but wouldn't be gay male. Uh, and that work that looked at the male as erotic object tended to assume he was being viewed by the gay male yeah. gays, not by women, yeah. or that women might be interested in gay male porn. Uh, and there was a load of work around slash in media studies, yeah. but it sort of viewed it as an isolated phenomenon. So women who would engage with fan fiction about two male characters from a TV show definitely wouldn't watch gay porn yeah. or read gay literature yeah. that was written for specifically for a male audience. Mm -hmm. It was like this weird little kink they had mm -hmm. that was just about fan fiction. Yeah. 
wasn't about anything else. And I was like, well, I'm not really sure that's true. Um, so that kind of drove me to the project. So in terms of the design, I had a bunch of focus groups. So I sort of generated ideas, listened to what people were sort of saying about what they liked about male, male, sexually explicit media, whatever form that might be, why they thought they liked it, how they came to, how they came to realise that that was what they liked. Then designed a questionnaire and kind of just put it out there, sort of snowball sampling. Um, it, responses kind of trickled in and then one of my friends said, oh, you should attach it to some of your fanfic stories. Oh my goodness, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so she was like, oh, why don't you put a little thing before? Because I had I'd written a story in Star Trek fandom. Right. Yeah, okay. That was, oh, I blew my own trumpet here, but it was quite, it was kind of in like the top 40. Most, was it? Most right, yeah. bookmarked stories yeah, okay. on AO3 yeah. for a bit. So I was like, oh, fame. Um, <laughs> So she was like, go on, like, so I've given you this lovely story, why don't you give me you know, five, five million hours of your life to fill in my fantastically long detailed survey? Um, and that worked really well. Yeah. Um, so I got a lot, and then a lot of people sort of signal boosted the survey, having read the story really? in like other fandoms and other groups. This was before uh, LiveJournal and Tumblr both got trashed, so right. they were kind of both quite good yeah. recruiting areas. Brilliant. So, I mean, you've talked around really what it was that drew you to the topic. You said that you've had your, your own interest in it. I just wonder if I could ask you sort of, how were the responses? Was there any, you know, this is people's sexuality, mm. their, you know, their sexual desires. Yeah. Was there any element there of nervousness, hesitation? Yes. What are you going to do with this information? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I definitely, yeah. I feel this is a community that hasn't been particularly well treated, either okay. by journalists or academics historically. Uh, there was a lot of pushback against specific studies mm. that had happened in the past. Um, so there's a kind of infamous study that was carried out by two uh, cognitive neuroscientists. Yep. <laughs> and you're nodding like you know who they are. Of <laughs> uh, and Cy Gadam, um, where they approached slash fiction saying that they thought it was like male interest in I'm using inverted comma square scare quotes here she male models so obviously like really gross transphobic language mm. a really problematic underlying assumption yeah and the people the slash readers were like whoa whoa like what yeah. is this and yeah. you've obviously decided that you know what's going on yeah. here uh and kind of approaching it as women who are kind of sexually weird and mm. because you know all women generally want as lovely vanilla sex with the lights down low in a nice sort of soft cloud of scented Indeed. bubble bath with their monogamous male partner. Yeah. Uh, and if you deviate <laughs> from that in any way, then you're odd. And yeah. if you deviate it from, from that to the extent that you're interested in male-male sex, mm. that's clearly something very, very wrong with you. Yeah. You're to be either fetishized or pathologized or marveled at or you're repulsive or monstrous in some way. So there was a lot of resistance, mm. um, understandably. Uh, so for me, I think it helped that I was quite upfront about being a slash writer, being an erotic mm. writer, being a watcher of pornography. Yeah. But obviously linking that all to my academic profile felt quite uh, yeah, <laughs> intimidating. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's still something I have sort of mixed feelings about in terms of yeah. I just live in horror that one day I'll walk into the lecture theatre and the students will have found some of my fanfic somehow and there'll be some massive, you know, rimming scene up on me. <laughs> <laughs> So I think kind of offering insights into kind of my sexual fantasies and my sexuality, mm. which I think through your writing, obviously you're not necessarily writing about you or what you like, no. but it reveals something about that, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Um, kind of helped to level the playing field 
a bit, but I think that's kind of interesting. I felt that was quite like good in terms of feminist methodology and trying to yeah, yeah, have those sort of power dynamics in place. But I had a very interesting discussion with one of my friends about this, where she was like, "Well, you know, it's easy to kind of make those arguments when you're looking at a group that you have sympathy for, that you yeah, feel have yeah. been unjustifiably marginalised." Mm. She does a lot of work with women in the far right, oh, okay. so she's like, "Would you say I would have to be a Nazi to research Nazis? You know, those people also want to have a sympathetic." insider researcher as opposed to a highly critical outsider researcher who they know is going to have quite deep-rooted personal feelings that what they're doing is wrong and gross and repulsive in some way so it's made me kind of really think about that positionality in terms of methodology I don't have an answer to it no no but that's absolutely fascinating right and I'm going to ask you a question that's sort of off script you said a moment ago you just sort of prompted me to think um You'd said about living in fear of joining your academic profile up. And yeah. And to, an element, and to an extent, this is sort of, this is a private side of you, isn't yes. it? You know? Now, I can relate to that in certain ways, because um, whilst I was doing my MA and my PhD, yeah. um, I worked as a burlesque performer, so yeah. I would strip for a living. Yeah. Um, and that has found its way into... Um, bits of work that I've done I've done bits of work around sort of burlesque aesthetics and bits and pieces and a similar thing occurs where you think oh I'm making myself really really vulnerable you know the internet is out there you know and and that whole sort of thing and how, how do you balance that how you know how did you have a discussion with your partner about this, for example? You know, um, I think. Well, actually, is that too nosy? No, 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 my this like predates meeting. I was I was single for nine years when I was probably when I was researching all the kind of pain, horror, misery, and death. Right. So I think it predates me getting together with him, but he wouldn't really have us. He just he knows better than do Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, it was quite difficult. I mean, I do a lot of research around sex work. Yeah. Where there's a similar kind of tension. Yeah. Um, so understandably within the sex worker rights movement there's that nothing about us without us kind of refrain which they've sort of borrowed from work around disability rights and child sexual abuse it sort of puts I think within the academy in a difficult position because on the one hand if you came out and say I have previously engaged with sex work it gives you a certain amount of kudos within that community you're more likely to get people Mm. taking part in your research and listening to you but on the other hand it puts you in a very vulnerable position in the academy yeah. in terms of your students and having a pastoral role. So in, even if you were in that position, it's difficult to know how you would mm. manage that because sometimes outing yourself can have benefits, but also there's a huge amount of stigma mm. and risk attached to it. I feel with erotic writing, it's slightly less intense yes. than that. Yeah, it's absolutely. one step removed from it, but mm. you're still, to a certain extent, creating a sexual product that you mm. are you know giving or selling or sharing with other people yeah yeah so I still think it's similar in that sense and it was it was really difficult I told mm. my dean at the time that I was going to attach it to the survey and that some of this uh might sort of come back on me and he was like oh, <coughs> oh okay mm, yeah I guess <laughs> I don't think he really knew what to make of it but but it's not like yeah. it's a shameful thing though is it you know it, no and and it fits so well within the narrative of the work anyway, yes yes yeah. so. Thank you for answering that. I'm aware that was sort of just <laughs> thrown at you out of nowhere there. Okay, um, so I was interested in a couple of terms that you use in the piece of work. Yeah. I know not all of them are yours, you're <coughs> them from other places. Um, but I wonder if maybe we could talk about some of these terms. Sure, yes. 
So I came across this term that you were using, this idea of gender folk. Yes. And it seemed to fit in with another a, a number of other terms that I'd sort of heard. But I wonder if you could maybe talk about that a little bit, because I think it's a really fascinating idea. Uh, sure. Yeah, and no, I think it relates to some other terms that have been raised around um, I don't know if I gender meltdowns and mm-hmm. some terms like that. Um, so I came across it in little bits of various bits of literature and uh, I kind of read about uh, Jonathan Mayer's perception of it and so he talks about it as kind of being twofold so on the one hand kind of fucking with gender as in like fuck you gender I'm going to mess about with you I'm going to like play with you I'm going to challenge you and sort of switch you around and kind of have some fun with that so Mm. we're kind of up yours to the view of gender as being binary and constrictive and kind of diametrically opposed you know masculine and feminine that's all you have they're very different from each other but then he says on the other hand it's also about making love to gender yeah so kind of fucking gender in a more romantic sense like appreciating that gender can be like beautiful and exciting but also you know can bring you anguish and Mm. pain but that there's something about gender which well we might rally against some of its constraints is also an opportunity for like excitement and experimentation yeah. and play that shouldn't be ignored. So I quite liked that conception mm. uh, of gender fuck. And so this idea then that kind of challenging gender in a way which is still respectful. Mm. Respectful of it's the wrong word. It makes it sound like I think gender should be venerated in some mm. way. But, but sort of is honouring the fact that it plays a big role in people's lives. Yeah. And it's important. Yeah. Um, if only there's something to kick back against. Yes. Almost. Yeah, kind of engaging with that can also be kind of fun and interesting. So I, I kind of, I thought was, worked quite well for some of the things I talk about in the book. Um, so this idea, for example, a lot of the women spoke about how, so a lot of women also watched heterosexual pornography and read heterosexual mm-hmm. romance or heterosexual fan fiction. Uh, but they were quite, they had quite a lot of caveats attached to it. So they were like, I only engage with heterosexual content if it meets certain criteria. Okay. And a lot of women spoke about, within fan fiction particularly, uh, gender-bending stuff. So okay. if the roles have been switched, so if you're reading about, say, Harry Potter and Hermione Granger, Hermione's character became the man and Harry's character became the woman. Okay. Yeah. So their characters were mostly the same in terms of character development and how Rowling had written them, but Hermione becomes a guy and Harry becomes okay. a girl. So it kind of challenges then all the things you think about how that gender impacts on that person, because suddenly you've got... A man who is behaving exactly like Hermione, but the only difference is he's not mm. he's not a woman. So they found that kind of interesting in terms of how it makes you kind of rethink power and yeah. kind of gendered elements of personality and how people behave towards each other and you know, traditional sexual scripts and how men mm. and women should interact with each other in sexual situations. So for me, that kind of idea of flipping genders over like that mm. uh, was kind of like gender fuck. It's this idea of kind of exploring it and challenging it and pushing it against it, but also looking at ways that you can be kind of playful and fun. Mm. The next thing I was going to ask you was about this idea of queer heterosexuality. Uh, yes. <laughs> so I think controversial. <laughs> so I finished your book last weekend when I went to stay with my best friend. Yeah. Um, and he was, you know, we sort of, we were having a chilled weekend in London, sort of wouldn't get actually started going anywhere and doing anything until yeah. after lunchtime, so we'd just sit around reading in the morning and I was sat reading this book and I said, so then, what do you think about <laughs> the idea of queer heterosexuality? And my best friend <laughs> is gay. Yeah. And, uh, and he was a bit sceptical. Yeah. He was a bit sceptical, and I must admit, I, I was a little bit as well. Yeah. So, um, I'm straight, he's gay, uh, and we agreed there was maybe that 
something that straights maybe shouldn't have access to that actually yeah. you've earned the right as a gay person to be um to be seen as queer yeah and maybe straight people haven't earned that yeah right. they haven't had the difficulties yeah and um, so could you talk around that a little bit? I mean, sure, it's very no. contentious. <laughs> yes, and yeah. the, probably the listeners are like, what are you even on about? <laughs> um, so could you, you know, say what it is we're talking about? Yes, and yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I was very aware kind of writing the book as a mm. cisgendered woman who's lived a predominantly heterosexual life and is now with a male partner that, you know, I have an enormous amount of privilege and you don't want to try and, like, kind of poach some of the cool bits of queer culture. Yeah without having paid the dues of marginalisation and being kind of persecuted and Mm. yeah um so I definitely think that's a valid criticism I did kind of edge towards it a bit gingerly Mm. but I think for me it so the majority of my sample wasn't heterosexual uh but a big chunk I think about 46 percent of the women did identify as heterosexual uh but a lot of them spoke about whilst they considered themselves to be heterosexual in so much as they were identified as women and most of their relationships were with men they didn't see themselves as straight they kind of didn't really like that term so one woman said oh I'm heterosexual sure but I'm a little bit bent uh, okay. and I think for her that was very much for a lot of those women it was very much that because they had non-conventional sexual tastes or they were mm-hmm. quite kinky or they were into BDSM but also the fact that they were very invested in uh, romance and sex being about the person not the gender so they yeah. were like I yes I am heterosexual but if a woman came along I would be, who I was attracted to, I would be open to falling in love with her. That's yeah. not something that I've said, oh, no, that's never going to happen, that's off the table. Yeah. Um, so it was more, I think, that the label straight kind of didn't really sit with them. It wasn't mm. a rejection of heterosexuality. But I think for them, straight was associated with heteronormativity. So yes, this idea okay. yeah. that I am on the straight and narrow. Uh, and then I read a lot of the work of Chris Beasley. So she writes about how you've got this lovely rainbow of queer identities yeah. that's beautiful and colourful and exciting and full of possibility and is always politically labile. And then you've got boring old heterosexuality in this little grey box that's like, oh, yeah. nothing can ever change. There's no exciting promise for the future. It's always heteronormative and like, no, we're all about vanilla heterosexual sex to make a baby and that's all we care about. Uh, and so she sort of writes about how she thinks that there should be some pushback against that, that being heterosexual doesn't mean being heteronormal. Mm. And that, you know, you're kind of looking for some sort of fusion of heterosexuality into that rainbow in some way to create some sort of way forward. Um, But I agree it can be a bit contentious. Um, It just kind of seemed to me as a kind of concept to sit quite well with some of the women in my sample. Mm. And I understand there's going to be pushback against it. I don't think this is necessarily, you know, mm. in the middle air quotes, right. But I also read Carol Queen, who, again, I think is a lovely writer. Mm. And she was writing about the sort of concept of queer heterosexuality and saying she didn't really want heterosexual people to be her allies because she felt that allegiances could be broken. She wanted it to be, I think she calls it a deep, dizzying, expectation-defying love affair. Yeah. Um, so kind of looking for this... There's ways that we can look for kind of commonalities mm. in terms of how... You'd be less inclined to break that, those yeah, things that like, you're part of. Exactly. Yeah. Every, everyone's a pervert or a weirdo in some way. <laughs> look for all the ways that we're not straight. Love all it. the yeah. ways that we're a bit kinky. Yeah. We can kind of create a common ground yeah. where we're not sort of setting ourselves up against each other. Mm. Because we're talking about female desire, you discuss and critique the widely held idea that when it comes to what you refer as SEM, so it's sexually explicit media, yes. isn't it? Uh, that men are aroused by an 
engage with porn yeah. and that women are aroused by and engage with erotica. Yes. Uh, obviously, there's a linguistic, taste-related, gendered judgment being made yeah. there. So I wonder if you could talk about this little bit and your findings with regard to this as well, because this really interested me. Yeah, I mean, I think there's an awful lot of writing on whether pornography and erotica are two different things, or whether they're just sort of two sides of the same coin, mm-hmm. or whether it's simply about rebranding something to make it sound more palatable, Yeah. Uh, depending on who your market is. Uh, and there was a range of responses from the kind of women I spoke with. So there was sort of, I guess there was two main responses. There were women who felt very much that what they were engaging with or what they were writing or producing was porn. Mm. And they wanted to reclaim that word. Uh, as in they didn't want it to be a word that could only be used by men to refer to what they like. They were like, yeah, women like porn, deal with it. Yeah. And I write porn because I can be sexual and I can own that sexuality and I can own that desire and I'm not going to be ashamed about it. And then there was a group of women who were like, absolutely not. You know, porn is about ramming something into an orifice repeatedly. Uh, and I engage with complex stories with right. like emotional okay. commitment and, and you know, <laughs> plots right. and a whole bunch of, of elements they felt wouldn't be okay. considered something that would make something porn. They're like, so porn is just for having a wank tea, whereas what I read, I might masturbate to it, but I also engage with it emotionally and intellectually. Okay. Um, so they wouldn't categorise it as porn. They felt erotica was a better title. But, I mean, there was still acknowledgement that the terminology is pretty fluid and slippery. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that it can be quite difficult to say what makes something pornography, what makes something erotic, and what mm. makes something a romance novel with some racy bits in it. Mm. Uh, what, what are the differences there? Um, and there were some women who said, well, you know, porn is visual and erotic is written. But again, those yeah, aren't, yeah. aren't necessarily particularly great distinctions because... You, know, you can definitely read stuff that's porn, and you can definitely watch yeah. sex on the screen that is, seems to be more like erotica. Mm. You know, has a plot. It's more like a movie, but mm. they don't cut to black in the sex bits. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, <laughs> so I think it was sort of interesting how they engaged with it. In some women, it was a real struggle. There was one uh, particular respondent who spoke about. She described herself as sort of an, an old, older feminist, and she said, "I remember the sex wars." Right. She said she'd actually been to you know one of the porn burnings where they kind of burned copies of right, okay, you know, big yeah. and bouncy yeah. and whatever. Uh, in protest, and she's like, now I write porn, and she's like, I find that hard to, to sort of square off those two elements. On the yeah. one hand, she's like, I still see myself as being like part of the anti-porn feminist movement, but yeah. on the other hand, I'm producing something which a lot of people would yeah. class as porn. And so she's like, I think there's very different parameters to the yeah. kind of porn I engage with than the kind of porn I used to protest against. But it's very difficult for her to hold those two ideas of herself and yeah. but then she's still head. using that term porn so to me that indicates there's actually an openness there to yes. you know there you know there is a, a spectrum yeah actually and so that that's you know it's really interesting sort of reflexive thought going yes, on there, yeah isn't it? and I think um I did a survey I haven't finished analyzing it yet but I did some preliminary analysis analysis with men who have sex with men asking them what they thought about you know w- women nicking their porn uh, as it were uh, and a lot of them uh, sort of spoke. I, I also asked, would you be willing to watch you know, male-male pornography that was directed by a woman and aimed predominantly a female audience? And would you read a, female, a woman-authored piece of male-male pornographic yeah. writing? And most of them said, yes, they would. Yeah. Uh, and there were some reservations about whether or not it would be a bit, you know, pink and fluffy or silly or wouldn't have an authentic kind of voice. Mm. Uh, but there was a number of respondents, I would say the, the, a larger larger proportion of respondents who are like sometimes I want something that's got more characterization a bit more romance I don't just want wham man thank you man and they're yeah. like 
women tend to be better at writing that, yeah. not not exclusively or always. Um, so it was like they also acknowledged perhaps there was this difference between pornography and erotica, but rejected it being necessarily gendered. Okay. Yeah. It being more about what mood you're in. Sometimes you want something that just scratches an itch, and sometimes you want something that makes you feel feelings. Yeah. yeah. As, as well as scratching okay. an itch. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fascinating stuff. Right. Um. So before long, in any conversation around porn, the thorny issue of the gaze and objectification yeah. emerges. Um, you seem to engage quite a bit with this idea of like the carnivalesque and the idea of yeah. playing and that transgressive nature yeah. of the carnivalesque. I wonder if you can maybe talk around that a little bit. Sure, sure. I mean, I don't think... Uh, I thought it was quite interesting there were a lot of women who sort of spoke about themselves more as being like equal opportunity perverts. So they, they right. sort of said they didn't necessarily object to the fact that the, the male gaze existed yeah. and that there was, you know, a bunch of stuff in popular culture that very much sexualised the female body mm. and, you know, gratuitous boobs out and every other episode of Game of Thrones, for example. Yeah. They didn't necessarily mind that. What they minded was the complete gap of anything that was catering for their yeah. gazes. Yeah. So it was more like, yeah, you know, nudity is fine. And a lot of them could appreciate that you know, the female form is beautiful. Mm-hmm. They didn't mind necessarily having it sort of shown to them in art or in mm-hmm. popular media, but they felt that it was very one-sided. So it was yeah. more this idea there should be a bit more of equal opportunity objectification. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as opposed to let's try and eradicate all objectification forever. Which we're probably not going to manage probably to Probably not going to manage to do. Yeah. Uh, and I thought, I think like Brian McNair was quite interesting in this because he writes a lot about how there's times when we want to be objectified. Mm, so if you're going yeah. on a first date or, you know, putting your profile up on a dating yeah, website, yeah. you want people to look at you and think, that person's hot, I'd like to fuck them. Yeah. Not yeah. like, oh, I wonder, I wonder what their opinion is on climate change. I would love yeah. to have a meaningful conversation with them. And actually, when people don't objectify you in certain situations, like if you made a big effort to look sexy for your birthday party, yeah, yeah. you feel a bit rubbish. You're like, yeah. why does no one fancy me? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I was having a really interesting conversation with another like feminist friend about this, and she was saying, yeah, she's like, it's like when you get too old for men to whistle at you from building sites. On the one hand, you're like, well, that was oppressive and horrible. <laughs> quite violating and terrible. On the other hand, you're like, am I no longer sexually desirable? Oh my goodness, what happened? So it's just a weird yeah, tension yeah, between yeah. disliking certain kinds of objectification, quite rightly, but sometimes wanting to be made to feel yeah. that you are a kind of sexual creature. Yeah. Uh, so having opened up this room for men to kind of also um, occupy that space, uh, and some of it, I guess some of the respondents were a bit more aggressive about it. Some of them were like, yeah, men, it should be your turn. You know, you should have to go to the Oscars and have yeah, Amy Poehler and Tina Faye saying, we saw your dicks at you for like yeah, five minutes. Yeah. And that's a funny comedy section. It's not really, is it? So some of it was from a place of anger. Yeah. But some of it was just from a place of appreciation of male beauty. Uh, mm-hmm. And I'm like, kind of wanting to have more of that and for men to be able to explore that aspect of their sexuality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think that's, so that's part of the kind of idea of play as well on the carnivalesque. And I think I sort of wrote in the, in the book about that because a lot of women spoke about how they sort of come to realise perhaps they had non-conventional sexual interests from childhood, but also childhood being seen as a time, particularly for women, mm. when, you can have, when you can explore gender, yeah. you can be a tomboy and yeah. there's room for that. But then as soon as you hit adolescence, yeah. that becomes more problematic. You put in a box and that's Exactly. It, so this idea that when we're, when we're children, we get to have much more fun with mm. both gender and sexuality, how we explore sexuality with our friends, you know, in children's games, and how we perform gender as kids. Mm. And then as you get older, all the joy and all the fun and all the potential just get sucked out of it. 
Uh, and it becomes increasingly politicised and increasingly policed. Mm. Um, so kind of seeing the world, uh, particularly I guess in the world of slash fiction, where people are kind of writing across genders and reading yeah. across genders uh, and kind of taking uh, a particular narrative that's been put out there, you know, by a corporation and messing about with it mm. as being quite liberating, as being yeah. like fun and playful. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this is also some women kind of rejected the whole concept of the survey. They were like, why are you asking me why I watch porn or why I read erotica? I do it because it's fun. Like, sex is fun and sexual content is fun. Like, why would you <laughs> ask someone, why are you going to the cinema today? You're like, because uh, I like the cinema. Yeah. I enjoy it. Um, so this idea that we have to make everything so complex and it has yeah. to become so serious. And obviously there are elements of that which are complex and serious, but that... Sort of seizing back control and saying, "Hey, this can be fun. We can mess around with it. We can kind of, you know, invite everybody into the carnival mm. and pretend to be whoever we want to be for this moment outside the kind of rules of how we're meant to be, yeah. you know, as a woman or as a man or as a trans person or whatever. We can just mess around with all of that and have yeah. some fun with it again." So I thought that was quite a mm. kind of nice theme that came up. Yeah, it, it, it was a really um, liberating message. I thought in an awful lot of ways, you know, really sort of engaging stuff. Um, so you've shed light on a practice that it would appear very few people know about. Yeah. Whether or not that's the case. Who knows? Um, what do you think your impl- the implications of your findings are for broader society? <laughs> I think this is a, it's a really interesting question. Um, I'm doing a piece of work at the moment looking at uh, people who research, academics who research sex or people who research sex from mm. within the academy or you know, independent research kind of areas. And how they feel that's perceived. Uh, it's not perceived, but it's not a huge amount of prestige attached to it, certainly no. within the academy, but also within popular culture. So my research got picked up by the Daily Mail last summer. Uh, <laughs> they, did a, they did an okay reporting of the key findings. They followed the press release quite what? nicely. That's so okay. The title was very misleading, but the byline was a bit dodgy, but the actual content was okay. But the below-the-line comments... So they were like, don't read them. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to. But a lot of my friends had read some of them and they were like, they're, you see, they're funny, you're going to laugh at them. But a lot of them were like, so this doctor, in inverted commas, uh, using taxpayers' money uh, to you know, look at this filth. Like, why can't you do something serious, doctor, like solve climate change or cure cancer? And I was like, well... <laughs> to be like my, my other research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, but I also felt... This I was is like, part of... <laughs> obviously, cancer is very important. And, you know, climate change is an existential threat to humanity. But I don't like the way that sex research is constantly denigrated. Like, sex isn't important. Like, pleasure and desire aren't important. It's like, even people who are asexual think about sex quite a bit and sexuality. Like, sex is all-encompassing in our lives and in our popular culture and in our art and literature and you think about it a lot are you having enough are you having it the right way who should you be having it with and it can have a massive effect on your mental health and your self-image so I, I'm just fed up with people being like that's not important that's not important mm. research I'm like it's really important mm. and I think particularly when it's about women there's this like oh female desire is this sort of flim flammy and it's almost thing, a joke in yeah. all sorts of ways as well isn't it you know? yeah but it's not really approached like seriously and I'm like well what mm. isn't what isn't serious about female pleasure about female mm. desire but even even I think with I, I have to be I brought this up at a feminist uh, porn kind of film night where I was on the panel and a lot of people were like hmm uh, but it's like even thinking about the flip side of what I studied so men who watch uh, women women mm. pornography 
how I call it lesbian porn because it's yeah. not obviously authentically lesbian a lot yeah. of the time. It's seen as being very oh, this is because men like tits uh, and men like objectifying women yeah. and there's no man there to threaten them. Simple, I've solved it. No one, as far as I can read in literature, no one has done a study where they've asked men, what do you like about this kind of pornography? There's this assumption that it's going to be for some sort of basic misogynistic yeah. reason yeah. that men's sexuality couldn't possibly be in any way queer or fluid or you know they might find similar kind of pleasures in watching that as women found in watching two men together. It's an assumption that's going to be just gross and simplistic. Yeah. And I just feel like there's not, because people yeah. don't even, there's so many assumptions in sex research, there's so mm. many old tropes that never get challenged, mm. that never get kind of actually interrogated. I mean, I might be wrong, men might just be very basic. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe they're not, yeah. maybe they're yeah. wondrous creatures with yeah. a complex kind of view of sexuality and their own sexual identity. Um, so I just kind of feel that that research is important, and I think it's important to kind of publicise it, it's happening. I, I hope that some people read it and feel like seen, that they feel like listened to, okay, that yeah. they feel that, that what they're doing or how they feel mm. is okay, that it's not kind of weird. Mm. There was a really uh, sort of sad story. There was one woman who spent a lot of time filling in quite detailed answers, but she was talking about how uh, she'd never really enjoyed sex. Uh, she got married to her husband quite young. She comes from a very conservative religious background. The first, on their wedding night, she was just absolutely astonished that he had pubic hair because she hadn't really visualised oh, men right. having pubic hair or what that would look okay. like. Yeah. And so she went through her whole life sort of occasionally having sex with him because she felt like it was her duty, but not enjoying it. And she just assumed that she was asexual. She didn't even know what that word. She didn't know the terminology for it, but that's what she assumed right. she was. And then in her, in her mid-50s, she saw Brokeback Mountain at the cinema and she saw like, the love scene and she said she suddenly felt this like spark and she's like, oh, this is the thing that other people oh talk about God. when they talk about sex. I get it. I understand it now. I feel, I feel something. What do you've got to your 50s? Yeah. You? Oh, no. And she's like, she, said she felt so sad. She felt oh. at that point she couldn't discuss it with her husband, but she thought maybe if it had come to her when she was younger, it could have been something she could have shared with him. Yeah. And it could have been something they could build on together because it had been a cause of distress for him that she wasn't particularly oh. into sex. And yeah. So she just feels that sort of her whole kind of life is wasted in terms of not knowing that there was potential for her to engage with her sexual identity in that way. So I think you kind of hope that maybe some people yeah. will see these stories and be like, oh, I'm not, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not a weirdo, I'm not a freak. And she like, gets a chance to talk about that as yes, well, you know, yeah. in a safe way as well, yeah. and that's great. And I think yeah. I also like, I talk a little bit about the work of uh, like Michael, Michael Warner and Lauren Berlant about bringing sex into the public sphere so having mm. public sex so instead of just keeping sex as something that happens privately that we don't mm. talk about um that is apolitical because it's something that sort of happens in the bedroom you bring mm. it out into the public square and you say actually sex is political which it is mm. and we're going to acknowledge it and talk about it and try and sort of move things forward not mm. just brush it under the carpet and act like it's an issue we don't have to yeah. engage with so i hope the book kind of achieves that yeah i think if people talk about sex a bit more in a way that and talk about their needs a bit more and you know then talk about things like consent and stuff a bit more yeah. that would be helpful there was also going back to the daily mail there was one commenter who said i don't know how this doctor managed to do this research because pornography is illegal in the uk so a bunch of people underneath were like dude <laughs> no it's not and he was like oh I'm that's what my partner's been telling me <laughs> he was like well i have learned something because i genuinely thought it was illegal yeah, people were like would you like me to send you an industrial box of ky jelly for the, you're going to be busy this evening <laughs> Thanks very much to Lucy for making time to chat with me. 
As I'm sure was very apparent from that interview, Lucy is an enthusiastic, engaging and very genuine researcher. I thoroughly enjoyed my time with her and I can't wait to see where she goes next with her research. If you're interested in finding out more about Lucy's work, then her book, Girls Who Like Boys Who Like Boys, Women and Gay Male Pornography and Erotica, is available from all good bookshops and is published by Palgrave Macmillan. All that remains now then is for me to say thanks to John Ashbrook of Radio Pictures for his tech input, to Lucy for agreeing to chat about such a fascinating topic, to the Shannon Riley Trio for allowing me the use of their song Trouble as the Here's Looking At You theme tune, and to you for listening to the podcast. Feel free to offer your opinions or suggestions for potential interviewees on Twitter at Dr Smut or on the Here's Looking At You website where you can also sign yourself up to be updated when the latest podcast drops. Equally, as I'm sure I've already pointed out, you can now access this podcast via iTunes. I'll be back soon for another conversation about the intersection of gender, sexuality and performance in film, TV and theatre. So until next time, here's looking at you.